Welcome to the Bethel Free Baptist Church Weekly Sermons. The following podcast is part 144 in the series, Contending for the Faith. This is the morning service of Sunday the 14th of February 2016, entitled The Genesis Account, Part 21. And the Bible reading is taken from Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 24. Here's Pastor Larry T. Curtis. All right, let's take our scripture reading this morning as we're back again in the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, I invite you to stand to honor the reading of God's precious and holy word beginning in Genesis chapter 3 verse 1. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said unto the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, But of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. The serpent said unto the woman, Ye shall not surely die. For God doth know that in the day ye eat thereof, then your eyes shall be opened, and ye shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that... It was pleasant to the eyes, and a a tree to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The eyes of them both were opened. They knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. They heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord, in the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam and said unto him, Where art thou? He said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told thee that thou was naked? Hast thou eaten of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldest not eat? And the man said, The woman whom thou gavest to be with me She gave me of the tree, and I did eat. The Lord God said unto the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, The serpent beguiled me, and I did eat. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, Because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel." And to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. And then to Adam, he said, Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife, and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. 
And the Lord God said, Behold, the man is become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and he placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to keep the way of the tree of life. Father, thank you so much again, Lord, that we even have your word to read this morning that's been preserved for us down through the centuries. Thank you, Lord, that we have the promise of your spirit that lives within us, that can give us understanding where that man's natural wisdom could never, ever understand this book. Father, thank you this morning that we have the promise that as we meet here, that your spirit that dwells within us, Lord, that he will speak to our hearts as no man can. So, Father, we pray this morning as you look upon each and every soul that is present here, and you know the needs of each and every one. Lord, I know fully that this man is capable of nothing. And Lord, I know that if anything is to take place here this morning, it is you that must do it. And that is what we pray for, God, so that you alone will receive the glory and the honor for it. Speak to us, Lord, that which we need. Help us, Lord. Help us to be receptive. Help us to be responsive. We'll give you all the praise for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. We continue with our task of really the impossible as we look and try to bring our series on the book of Genesis to a conclusion over the next several weeks. And of course, this all part of our greater series on contending for the faith and one of the very elements, fundamentals, foundations of the faith that we are to contend for, the Genesis account. Now we've looked thus far, and it's quite amazing when you stop and think just in the first three chapters of the Word of God. Remember that the Bible asks us a question in Psalm 11.3 that if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Folks, if we lose our foundation, there is nothing that we can do. There is nothing that we will accomplish. We find that in these first three chapters, we saw, first of all, the foundation was laid for the authority of God's Word. Without that... We have nothing else. We saw, secondly, for the assertion of God's existence. He is, in the beginning, God. He was there, no question about it. The absoluteness of God's creation. No elements, no help, no nothing. God doing it all himself in six literal days, as the Word of God declares it. The advancement of the human race, man, woman, Married together as one, bringing forth children, the accountability of mankind. You know, man will never see his need for salvation if he doesn't, first of all, realize and accept that he is accountable to his creator. The administration of home life as God meant it to be. And then last week as we continue to remember, this is a review these past few weeks of what we spent weeks and weeks upon doing to try to bring this all together and to remind us we must be conscious today. God has put it upon us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and it's delivered to us in his word. 
I'm not saying that you cannot be saved and not understand one of these things. But I'm saying to you today that the Christian faith that has been delivered to us, these are the foundations that it is upon, and it's not that same faith when you begin to remove any of them. We saw last week, seventhly, the acuteness of man's fall, the depths that man fell to, the reaches of it. And as we looked there, we saw, first of all, the entrance of Satan as we begin here in, in chapter 3. Now the serpent. We saw the entrance of Satan, which then was followed by the enticement of the woman. He beguiled her. You know, we said that after the enticement of the woman, we saw the error of man, the biggest error that was ever made. He purposely chose to disobey God. The entrance of Satan, the enticement of the woman, the error of man, brought about the estrangement with God. We were separated, divided, because of the sin that, that came in through that one simple sin of disobedience. We saw then, following the estrangement with God, we look next, of course, at the enmity with Satan. We were estranged, separated with God, but we had an enemy that would be our enemy forever. We find that God made it very, very clear. And it's part of that that we're going to turn back to in just a moment in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15. But we did look after that at the encompassing of the curse, just how far the curse reached. We don't know anything. We've never seen anything. We can't even begin. We might think that we can imagine it. We can't imagine anything, any person, anything that's out there without the curse. We've never known anything without the curse. And we saw, of course, that because of that curse and everything that it encompassed, that, of course, it reached right down through the centuries and encompasses and continues to encompass all of mankind. Now, as we thought about that and the acuteness of man's fall and just where man fell to and where, where it was that he was headed to, we began to touch upon this next thing, which was the abolishment of Satan. We did a whole study on Satan, and if you want the notes, I'll be glad to pass them on, or it's, it's, it's somewhere on the, on, on the website, but we looked at Satan. He is real. We looked at his person, his position, his purpose, his power, his providence, and our protection. But all I want us to do in remembering this is that it was there in the garden. Remember, this was Satan's first contact with mankind. The first time that Satan and man ever met, the Bible told us we looked into the New Testament, that he is the father of lies, that he was a liar and a murderer from the beginning. This is where it took place. This is where he murdered man through a lie, the first statement that he ever made to him, his subtle work. Remember, we were saying this morning that humility Pride. It was pride. Satan was the first one to fall when he was an angel because of pride, because he thought that he could be as great as God. We find that there in the garden, he entered in. He brought all these things we looked at last week, but then God made a promise. He said uh, in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. <laughs> 
and between thy seed and her seed. In other words, I'm going to put enmity between Satan and his seed and Christ and his seed. That's part of the judgment of the curse that came about because of sin. The battle rages. That's what our conference this week is really all about. It's about building us up. It's about putting that whole armor of God. It's called the sword of the spirit Bible conference because it's the word of God that says the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's the only thing that will build us up and give us the strength that we need. We have an enemy. The battle rages between Satan and all of his followers and Christ and all of his followers. And folks, there are no other sides. There is no middle ground. There is no neutral territory. You are part of one side of this battle that began right there in the Garden of Eden. If the verse stopped there, it would be pretty dark. Oh, this battle, never-ending battle. It's going to go on and on, but it doesn't stop there. I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And we went through this the first time. We went through and looked at some of those words and the way that it's put there. But may I just summarize and remind you that Satan could only bruise the heel of Christ. He could only cause him to suffer. While Christ would bruise the head of Satan, which is to utterly destroy him with a fatal blow. I can remember as a young lad, I was probably about, about 13 years old when I come face to face with my first snake that was big. And, and I was actually working for another preacher, helping, helping do some work around his house. And, and I was down there working near the front road, and, and I heard these screams tear out. And it was his daughters. <laughs> they were just a couple of years older than me. And I tore off running, you know, what's all the screaming about? And there was this snake that had come out of the wood pile where he had all this wood chopped up to, to burn in his wood stove. And there's this snake coming across. Well, even I, at that age, I knew. So, you know, it's not going to hurt you, you know, just, just stand still. You know, he's not going to attack you. He's more afraid of you than you are of him. But, oh, you know, they were absolutely going hysterical. And that was the first time that I crushed the head of a snake and killed a snake. And that was the end of it. And that literally is the picture that God is giving us here. He may cause you to suffer, but in the end, he will be utterly destroyed. Oh, that's what I want you to remember today. We sang that song. There is victory in Jesus. We have an enemy and he is fierce and there is nothing that's below him. He's more subtle than, than any other creature out there. He'll pull any trick that he possibly can. I don't want you to know something. The very basis, the foundation, if you would, for the abolishment of our great enemy, Satan, is laid right here. In Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15 of your Bibles, in the very beginning, when he first raised his head against mankind, God prophesied that he would be utterly destroyed. Now, there is no question of his defeat. It's here in Genesis that that ultimate defeat is laid. But of course, then it was accomplished on Calvary when Jesus Christ hung there. In this battle, Christ will deliver the ultimate blow 
He will bruise, he will utterly destroy the enemy once and for all. Have you ever heard the question asked? Because I face it sometimes, especially with, with a society that tries to figure out what, you know, I've been asked things like, well, you know, if, if Satan is so evil, and if he's behind so much of this evil stuff, why didn't God just kill him and get him out of the way? Why didn't God just go ahead and destroy him right now? Have you ever thought that? Have you ever heard anybody ask you that? Well, why does God just get him out of here and destroy him? Well, there's a lot of things that could be said there. But I want to give you one this morning. I want to draw your attention to what's happening here because may I remind you again that Satan's ultimate destruction is tied directly to the ultimate destruction of sin itself. You see, it was Satan that tempted man to sin that first time. Sin is what brought this curse. Sin itself would be destroyed when Satan himself is destroyed. Now, Revelation chapters 19 and 20, and I wish we had time, but we really do not have time to read all of that this morning. But that describes the final abolishment of Satan from this earth. Do you remember how it ends? Revelation chapter 20. I'll read you these few verses. It says in verse 10, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. And I saw a great white throne, and him that sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, and the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works, and death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. When do you see the curse itself being, re being released, being lifted? Chapter 22 Verse 3, notice what happens here. First of all, in verse 1, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and out of the Lamb. In the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river, was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3, And there shall be no more curse. Praise God. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. That's when the curse in the new paradise where there is no sin, the curse is gone, it's lifted forever, there will never, ever, ever be anymore. You know, the hard part is that it's hard for us to grasp that when the battle is still raging around us. I heard the illustration given like this sometime. It's like you're in a battle and you're within the city walls and the enemy has the city totally and completely surrounded. I mean, he's coming at you and all this force and you just see no way and supplies are running low and you feel like you just don't have much left to fight with. Seems like it's finished. You're done. Suddenly, 
once somebody sneaks through those enemy lines and gets into the city. He says, I got news for you. Guess what? These guys out here don't know it yet, but the enemy was already defeated down the street and the word's going to get to them soon that the battle's over. They've got to surrender. They can't fight any longer. Sometimes we may feel like that we're under siege by Satan, that all of his forces are coming against us, but folks, listen. The battle's already won. He's already defeated. Word just hadn't got to all those demons that might be surrounding you, but it will get there. And they will come to realize it's lost. There's nothing left for them to do. It's only because of this foundation that's laid that it starts making sense to us. Two very important things I want you to remember, take from this. First of all, the abolishment of Satan for the sinner. You see, if you're here today, anybody that hears these words, if you're lost, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, it ought to drive you to your knees immediately as fast as you can get there to seek the forgiveness that you can only find in Jesus Christ. We heard it saying about earlier, it's God's grace. He hasn't brought about. Why doesn't God just go ahead and destroy him? Partially because of you. He hasn't brought about the abolishment of Satan for this earth yet because to do so, as we read in Genesis, would be to abolish you for all of eternity. It's God's mercy. You see, he's given you another opportunity today. He's given you the opportunity to get off of that defeated side and become part of the winning side. The abolishment of Satan is certain. But what about you? Will you be utterly destroyed with him? Or will you be on the victor's side, Jesus Christ? You see, the abolishment of Satan for the sinner or the abolishment of Satan for the saint. You know what, saint? Boy, it should give you hope and encouragement today that the victory really is yours. That one day you will not have to ever, ever, ever face or see or hear from that enemy again. Also, that even though you might be fighting now, and even though it might be a struggle, sometimes... You think that you're facing more than is just humanly possible. The foundation is sure. The victory is yours. It's only because that you are still facing those battles that your family and your friends that are lost still have hope today. Just as sure as Satan is still there battling for their souls, so is Jesus Christ. Their end hasn't been sealed yet. But once Satan's is sealed, it will be. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 3, he said this. He said, the second, the second epistle, beloved, now write unto you, in both which I stir up your pure minds by way of remembrance, that ye may be mindful of the words which are spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandments of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers 
walking after their own lust and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. For this they willingly are ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water, whereby the world that then was being overflowed with water perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. People are going to people are going to make fun. Okay, where, where is this end coming from? He takes them right back to the book of Genesis and the God that created it and the God that destroyed it, and that this earth that we now live on it is reserved in judgment by fire. But beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing: that one day is with the Lord is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack. Concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Look, the reason that the Lord hasn't come back yet is not because in any way he's not keeping his promise or that he's slack in keeping those promises. It's because of his long-suffering in giving those that are lost opportunity to be saved before it's all finalized. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. Wherefore, my beloved, seeing that you look for such things, be diligent that you may be found of him in peace without spot and blameless and account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, and which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to him be glory both now and forever. The abolishment of Satan is a fundamentally, foundationally important doctrine. But may I say something to you? We know that that is coming. But there is something else because the abolishment alone is not sufficient. The abolishment of Satan alone will not fix everything. Just destroying him wouldn't be sufficient. 
Because as we've already seen in the acuteness of man's fall, that the sin that was brought into the garden brought with it death, and that that death was passed on to what? To all men. Doing away with Satan after the fact may destroy our enemy, but that doesn't destroy sin, nor does it destroy the consequences of sin. Something else is needed. That's not only the abolishment of Satan, but the atonement for sin. Now again, folks, it's a big subject, and we spent a lot of time there, but I want to close with giving you this thought, the atonement. You see in verse 21, he says, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. What do we mean by the atonement of sin? Well, there's a lot of ways that we can look and describe, but it has to do with that reconciliation to God. The estrangement came because of sin. The atonement is what will once again reconcile us to God. We find that many times it's referred to is at one moment. Being made one with God again after being separated. We find that we consider the acuteness of man's fall and the abolishment of Satan. We consider the severity, the extremities of man's fall, the consequences that, that pass to all mankind. As important as that is, that great consequence that God warned us ahead of time that would be death, it still reigns and it still rules because of sin. You see, Satan only had to bring about the first sin to bring about death, to bring about the curse. To atone has to do with making amends for something. It speaks of two things that are divided, two things that are estranged, as we saw, separated, being reconciled to God when amends are made that can bring that about. You see, the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is what made the atonement absolutely necessary. We can look at a lot of things. We went through all these. and Let me just remind you that if there hadn't been a fall, if we hadn't failed in the first place, there would have been no condemnation. Without the condemnation, there wouldn't have been any separation. Without any separation, there wouldn't have needed to be any reconciliation. Without the need for reconciliation, we wouldn't need redemption. Without that, we wouldn't have needed the incarnation or the crucifixion or the resurrection. In fact, if it weren't for the fall, there wouldn't be any need for salvation at all. None of these things, they're all there. If you remove sin, nothing else is necessary. That's the problem. That's the root of it all. And it's because of sin that we need the atonement. And the foundation for that is laid right here in Genesis chapter 3. Notice. I mean, all this that we've seen right in the midst of God's judgment being dealt out on Satan, upon Adam and Eve, upon all of creation. Before expelling man from the garden, what does God do? He shows mercy. Genesis 3, 20, and Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothed them. Because of sin, man was no longer fit 
to even be in God's presence. God himself, in his great mercy, provides man with a garment to cover his sinful flesh so that he might once again be able to be in his presence. The garment God gave him there in the garden was only a temporary one, but it was symbolic of the permanent covering, the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. That's the only thing that will cover our sins. But even here, that covering was what allowed for man's atonement with God. What did it require? It required the shedding of the blood. That was when the first animal, you see, without the shedding of blood is no remission. It required the shedding of blood. It required the death of our Savior. Man is indicted for his sin. But God himself in his mercy provides the covering to cover that sin. And he does the same thing for us. And I, boy, I wish, I wish I had time. You can never, ever, ever read the verses too much. But in Romans chapter 3, we find that in those verses, chapter, verses 9 through 20, we find every human being alive is indicted. You see, he says, there is none righteous, no, not one he says that all have sinned. If we look at that, we see that there is no human being that is not guilty of the sin. But then in verse 21, you see, it closes out in verse 20, therefore by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now, the righteousness of God without the law is manifest being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God to declare, I say, at this time, his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. That's quite a long sentence, isn't it? Wow. The truth that it's filled with. You see, first of all, all, every human being is indicted for sin, which brings death. But all, he says then, who will believe, all who will come by faith, all will accept his mercy and his grace can be justified by the righteousness of Jesus Christ, their sins can be atoned for. They can be clothed. They can be covered. We find that, you know, it's kind of like, uh, most of you have seen city maps. If you took a map of London, you could take a map of London and uh, one of them might be a, an aerial map, which just looks down the whole city from above. Another might be a topographical map, which gives you all the highs and lows and the way the land lies. Some which are pretty important to us when we're driving are the road maps, which shows where all the roads go. But then there's the walking maps, there's the tourist maps, there are the maps of all the waterways, and there's the maps of the undergrounds and where they all go to, and, and lots of others. And you know what? They're all true. They're all accurate. 
but they're all slightly different because of what they're focusing upon. Now, if you took all of those and packed them all on top of each other, every layer, man, would you have the full picture? But if you're just looking for the road, it'd probably be pretty confusing. If you're just looking for the right underground to get on, it might get real confusing real quick. And that's kind of when we begin to look at this. We see a lot of words here that mean so much justification, redemption, propitiation, remission. They're all accurate. They're giving us a different view of this atonement for mankind. And sometimes we just need to look at them one at a time. We say, wow, that's beautiful, and that's beautiful. That, it's all true. We begin to see the whole picture. It's not the teaching or the knowledge. It's not the great doctrines. Folks, you know, I, I believe the church is weak today because the church doesn't stand for much anymore today. It doesn't stand upon the doctrines. People say, oh, doctrine just divides. We need to all be joined. It does divide. It divides the right from the wrong. It drives the truth from the lies. It needs to divide. It needs to be God's teachings and that alone. But you know what? All that teaching and all that doctrine in the world will not save one soul. It's the act of the atonement. It is Jesus Christ sacrificially giving himself on the cross and shedding his blood for your sins. It is the act of you accepting and believing in that and falling upon your knees and crying out to God in humility. Swallow that pride. Admit that you're a sinner. Recognize that Jesus Christ is the only one that can give you the covering that you need so that you can even be in the presence of God. Today, we find that there's so many, so many scriptures I don't have time to go and read them all because the clock's beating me again. <laughs> Listen, the Bible talks about it as a debt, like the bank. You know, a hopeless debt that only Jesus can pay. The Bible talks about us being slaves and Jesus coming into the market, marketplace and redeeming us from that bondage. The law court condemned. But Jesus Christ bearing the penalty for us on our behalf. The temple the Gentiles were excluded because of the defilement of sin. But Jesus gave himself a sacrifice to consecrate us for a way to come to the throne of mercy. The home, children, disgrace, far, far away from the Father. Jesus brought us back into the family circle. We've got to be born again. We've got to be adapted, and he uses that. And, of course, as we've seen here today, the battlefield, <laughs> Captives, confined to the fortress of Satan, and yet Jesus broke in to deliver us and set us free. We're no longer captives with Jesus Christ. Stop and think that God knew what would happen to man in the garden. God knew how far that man would fall. He knew Satan's plan before he committed it. He knew he was going to deceive and he was going to tempt man into the fall. Of course, in light of that, God already had his plan in place. He already promises, hey, he's dust. He's done for you. Yeah, you're going back to the dust because that's where you came from. But guess what? I'm going to utterly destroy this enemy. He is done for. But I'm also going to give you a covering 
to cover that sin which you've fallen into. His great love, his great mercy, he planned for the atonement so that not only the, 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 the enemy could be destroyed, but that you could be reconciled to God in the relationship that you need with him. Folks, if you take away those foundations that are laid for us there, you take so much away, and we could look at so many passages, if only we had time, but just remember and grasp the message of what we see here. Our, our enemy is done for, but so is our atonement made. i give you this story in closing. It was about a young brother and sister and she had a deadly disease. She was dying, and there was absolutely nothing that the doctors could do about it. It was such a rare blood disease, and the rareness that she had, that there was only one match, and that was her brother in all the world. One match that could take care of that problem. So little Jimmy was called in, and the doctor explained to him, said, would you give Mary your blood so that she can live? Wow, that brought shock. I mean, fear to his eyes, you know. But then his face softened, and he thought about it for a moment. He said, yeah, she's my sister. I'll do it. And so this went on, and they rolled them both into the operating room there, and they were there, and they put the, the needle in his arm, and that blood started flowing out of his veins and flowing to his sister. That big smile on his face became a very, very serious look. Little Jimmy looked up at the doctor and said, doctor, when am I going to die? <laughs> when am I going to die? When the doctor asked him the question, would you give your blood for Mary? He thought the doctor was talking about all of it. <laughs> he thought that for him to give that blood meant that he was going to have to die so that his sister could live. You know, the truth is, is that little Jimmy didn't have to die. Only his blood would keep his sister from dying, though. But Jesus did have to die for you. And Jesus did willingly die. And the Bible says that he did it for you while you were still yet his enemy because everybody here today, you see, if you're not on his side yet, you're still on Satan's side. I don't care whether you want to be or whether you want to admit it or not, that's the only place you can be. Jesus died for you. He gave his blood. He died on the cross of Calvary. The wages of sin is death. That's the only thing. It couldn't go anywhere. He had to die for you. The only thing that would cover your sins is his blood. Jesus did what he did for you today. Satan, his doom is sure. What about yours today? What about yours today? Are you going with him? God doesn't want you to. Remember what we read? I know I've had to rush through so much, but we're just kind of reviewing here this morning, supposedly... Listen, you don't have to be on the losing side. God's, it said, he said it's got not God's will that any should perish. He says that all that would come, all that would have faith, all that would believe can have the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Today, that promise is still to you. You're here and you're a sinner. I can't tell you, you can't get to your knees fast enough. 
I'm not saying that to play on your emotion. I'm simply saying to you, you don't know when your next heartbeat is going to be your last. You don't know what you face when you leave here. Right now, by God's grace, he hasn't destroyed Satan yet because to do so would be to destroy you. And by his mercy, he's giving you an opportunity here today. Sinner, will you go to your knees today? Christian, what did he say to us? Man, it ought to drive us to be out there, to be serving him, to be doing more for him than we ever have before. It's because that God hasn't abolished our enemy yet that there's still hope for your friends, your family, my friends, and my family. Every head bowed and every eye closed. This service is about to become history. We're going to sing just a couple of verses of just as I am here in just a moment. I want to ask you this question. Are you here today? Are you here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior? I can't do anything for you myself. I can only pray for you. But I would like to pray for you. Are you here and you say, I don't know that. I don't have that certainty. But I would really appreciate your prayers for my soul, for my destiny. That's all I'm going to do is to pray for you. Nobody looking around. Nobody looking around. Young people, eyes closed for just a moment, please. Would anybody lift their hand and say, Preacher, please just, just pray for me. Pray for me. I don't have that certainty of knowing, but I would appreciate your prayers. God bless this hand. You can put it down if you've raised it. God bless this hand. God sees your hands. You know, every one of you today, right now, you can put your hands down. Right now, God will save you if you'll just humbly come to him, believing and recognizing that only Jesus Christ and his finished work. Religion won't do it. Churches can't do it. Baptism won't accomplish it. You alone can humble yourself, admitting your sin and seeking forgiveness by the only means, by the only covering that's possible, and that's in Jesus Christ. If you're here and you raise your hand, if you'd like to come and pray, then the altar is open for you this morning. If you'd like to pray with someone, then we'll gladly take God's word. We'll answer any questions that you might have that we possibly can. We'll pray with you. Let me ask you this, Christian, are you here today? As God reminded you, we are in a raging battle. Satan is still trying to deceive and destroy every one of your friends today every one of your family that doesn't belong to Christ. Are you doing everything on your behalf? Or are you just expecting it to happen or somebody else to do it? Maybe today, maybe you need to come and just recommit your praise. Thank God for what he's done for you. And ask him to rekindle that fire in your life, in your heart, to do what you need to, to help win the loss to Christ. We're going to stand, we're going to sing right now. Father, Lord, you know the hearts of each individual here today. You know the needs. Lord, I'm not here to play on anybody's emotions, to get anybody to, to do anything for number's sakes or anything like that. But Lord, it's your word that's been preached this morning. And it's only your spirit that can speak to the hearts. You've seen the hands of those that have been raised, that have been honest, saying, look, I don't have that absolute assurance of knowing today. And Lord, I commit them to you and I pray for them right now as earnestly as I know how. Lord, I pray 
that if you've shown them that and they've realized that this morning, I pray, Lord, that they would not waste the opportunity. Maybe this day they need to humble themselves. They need to admit their sinfulness and seek forgiveness through what Jesus accomplished for them. Help them, Lord, to be willing to do that. And Lord, for every one of your children here today, Lord, if you've spoken to them in some way, if there's something in their life that they need to commit, that they need to bring to you, then I pray, help them, Lord. Again, it's that old pride that'll keep people just sitting there carrying the same problems out of here that they came in with. Help them to swallow that pride, to humbly fall upon their knees here this morning. Give whatever it is to you and ask you to help them. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Amen. 